0: As you know, those of you who are listening today, Ambassador Stephen Rapp has joined us to speak tonight to an audience of SOAS, academics and staff, colleagues from across the University of London, several NGOs and various other people. And it's really in 2001 that you joined the world of international criminal justice, first as chief of prosecutions, as I understand it, for the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Then... As Chief Prosecutor of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, where you led the prosecution of former librarian President Charles Taylor, and most recently as Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes, where you headed the Office of Global Criminal Justice at the United States Department of State until just this past August. You began, really, in the international world of criminal justice in 2001. It was pretty new at that time. There, there were two ad hoc tribunals, one of which you began your work for. But the International Criminal Court didn't even really come into being until about a year after you started. So in these years that you've been working in this domain, what, what would you say the most significant changes have been?
1: Well, I think the most significant change is that the, the, the ad hoc tribunals, which as of 2001 were still, uh, um, that to some extent, in their infancy and hadn't really produced judgments and, and still had a, a great many outstanding fugitives, but in the first decade of the of the of the twenty first century, uh, with a lot of assistance from states, including the United States and the European Union and others, that brought pressure to bear on countries where the fugitives were hiding, and with the international community providing the resources necessary for those tribunals to do their work, we were able to, um, you know, bring Milosevic to trial at the ICTY, uh, try uh, eighty two. Of the ninety-three people that we'd indicted at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, uh, including and, and convict uh, people at the highest levels of, of the government, I myself tried media leaders in the trial that I personally led, and then supervised other trials. And uh, and then the ICTY, uh, uh, as we kind of come to two thousand and eleven, with continued pressure by by various countries. Uh, Toward the former Yugoslavia, toward Serbia, Croatia, other countries that wanted to join the European Union, and we're told you can't come in unless you uh, unless you fully cooperate with international justice was actually able to get all of its fugitives uh, to uh, in in into court. So that was that was the story of the international uh, uh, tribunals, the so-called ad hoc or, or temporary ones. We had other uh, uh, mixed courts beginning, and and that certainly was my own experience. Uh, in Sierra Leone, which was a court not established by the Security Council but established under an agreement between the UN and the country where the crimes have been committed, that country asking the UN to help it set up a court with international participation but with a mixed composition, a slight majority of of international judges and and, and key personnel to ensure that it would be done independently and that the skills of the the domestic uh, uh, individuals would be strengthened. That court uh, was able to try leaders of the three major groups involved in the, in the atrocities in, in Sierra Leone and the leader of the president, the leader of the country next door, that it played such a significant role, uh, aiding one of those groups and receiving diamonds in, in, in return, and, and to, to such an extent he was almost the authors of their crime, at least that was our, our allegation. So that court was able to do its work and, and conclude it. Then, of course, we had the establishment of the International Criminal Court, which, which to some extent followed on this, this foundation but, uh, but with, a, with, a different, um, with a different structure, a treaty-based court that would, uh, that would apply its law to countries that adopted it. So far, 123 are in, 72 members of the UN are not, including the United States. And, uh, and a court of last resort only to handle the cases that couldn't be handled at the national level when there wasn't the will or capacity. And uh, it's had a, a slow start, but uh, it's, it's had setbacks. There, 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 there are situations where, where it is achieving progress, and uh, uh, you know, all of which is to say that I think this international project is, is with us to stay, but I think a lot of the challenges of the ICC faces today are, representative of the fact that it is very challenging uh, to take this this uh, idea beyond a single situation, beyond a situation of Yugoslavia or Rwanda or Sierra Leone where there's a global consensus that there needs to be justice uh, to, to a variety of situations in the world where uh, sometimes very horrible crimes are, are happening but yet it's very difficult uh, to get uh, the kind of support that you need uh, to, to try them in those places and uh, certainly my own attitude uh, and, and throughout, even as a, as a U.S. diplomat has always been, that this project uh, is nothing if it's not about ending impunity. It's, it's not about, you know, one victim being more important than another. If there are horrendous atrocities in the world, justice needs to be provided there too.
0: Let me bring you back to Sierra Leone, because really this is an extraordinary trial that you that you were engaged in. The prosecution of former Liberian President Charles Taylor. Now some people, as you know, argue that this has created the so-called Taylor precedent, whereby leaders in Africa, and a lot of people point to President Mugabe in Zimbabwe, potentially are are less tractable when it comes to negotiating the end of conflict.
1: Basically, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. And the bottom line to a get-out-of-jail-free card is do it again and you get out of jail again. And so that's the the fundamental problem with that. We don't do that to to maintain peace in our neighborhoods if some thug... uh, uh, is threatening to kill us, we say, oh, go free, we won't, we won't do anything to you, uh, and then just come around and do it again. Uh, what the world has to do is to be serious about these things, and, and frankly, peace is not, at the end of the day, possible. Groups do not accept governments made up uh, of individuals that have committed these crimes against them. That does not make a peaceful resolution. I know it's hard to negotiate, it makes it very hard, but, uh, but uh, the results uh, are frankly not worth it. When you negotiate with, with leaders that have committed mass atrocities, it's not a real peace.
0: One of the really big issues in all of this, of course, is timing, right? The timing of when a conflict ends, the timing of justice. And, and you are not one for shying away from the really tough problems. You've been working a lot on Syria over the past several years. Um, and, of course, this is... a very, very violent, ongoing conflict has been going on since for since 2011, since a couple of years after you took up your job as ambassador. When did it first occur to you that there could be some sort of serious accountability process for Assad and his crimes, and, and what work have you done on this?
1: In my view, <laughs> it remains establishing the truth, uh, uh, building toward the day when, when, when accountability will be possible, and and that's involved favoring and, and supporting uh, uh, UN Human Rights Council uh, appointed commission uh, that's, that's reported on the, the horrendous violations that have occurred there, many of them crimes under international law. Uh, doc, private documentation efforts uh, supported by governments, uh, independent ones, and, and that was really an initiative that I that, that I pushed and, and that uh, my boss Hillary Clinton rolled out in Turkey in, in 2012 in April at a Friends of the Syrian. People uh, meeting the establishment of these documentation centers with support of governments that are uh, today uh, uh, brought out hundreds of thousands of pages of, of documents. At the same time, we've uh, had defectors like Caesar. And Others that have brought out documents that will give us uh, the capacity to prosecute in the future to a greater extent than we've had almost in any of the other situations. But then, you know, the, the question you want to get to is, uh, you know, how? Do, when do we have that justice? And, and how does that that justice? Well, let fit let in. me
0: ask you in a very specific mm-hmm. way. If you thought that Assad was willing to participate in a serious, incredibly participate in a process that would lead to a peace, would you? you know, what would the solution on the justice side be? Would you be in favor of deferring the justice question and striking a deal? I mean, there's a lot of talk now, maybe not in the public domain, but certainly behind the scenes about talking to Assad again.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not against talking with people and, and, and working toward peaceful re- resolutions. Uh, but, you know, what I know of Syria and what I know of the communities there is, whatever we in the international community may say... Uh, about the, even if, if everyone in the international community and in every Western country were to say uh, Assad has to be part of the solution, the Syrian people would reject that. There would be no one would sit in the government with him that I know that I met with. Uh, it's just it's just impossible. I mean, it's like you know saying that you know Hitler was the answer to the Cold War or something. I mean, it doesn't. You don't. You you can't build on the foundation of of, of, of Assad. I mean, we've had problems in Iraq with with ISIS. Uh, and, and part of the issue in Iraq was the narrow government that Maliki had formed, and uh, unfortunately, there was an election, and he and, uh, and he was eventually replaced. But uh, this guy's a thousand times worse than Maliki. He cannot. Uh, I mean, Maliki at least was represented the Shia majority in that country. In this country, he's completely alienated the vast majority. There's are Sunni, and and, uh, and other communities, uh, even Christians, support him only because they're worried about the about the future. Uh, and would much prefer to have other other kind of, of leadership. So we we can't build peace around this guy. I mean, we could say that, oh, yes, do it. Oh, he can stay for a while. No, no, that's a, that just does not that does not work. And and so the that's that is a hard one. But but fundamentally, one has to. Uh, I mean, when I meet with Syrians, they talk about dialogues that have begun between the Alawite and the, and the Sunni communities and recognizing common ground and ways in which a, a, a federal kind of Syria could be, could be created. I think we have to work in, in with, with those kinds of, of efforts. And then justice has to be part of it, again, but not a justice and, uh, ideally, even a Colombian kind of justice, if that were, the, if, that were if that were possible, one that would uh, focus on high-level actors, and, and a justice that would be in this more divided society, in a sectarian and ethnic sense than, than Colombia, representative of all of those groups, but with some international participation to give people greater confidence that it wouldn't be uh, the winners just trying to, uh, trying the losers, and that it wouldn't be something in which uh, uh, crimes that occurred on, on all sides that were minor or, or crimes of, of vengeance or passion, etc., wouldn't be the subject of uh, constant trials, that the focus would be the, the sort of high-level actors. That, that, and that's, when, when I talk to Syrians, the kind of thing that, that, that they want to see. Um, and and the way to peace, I think, would, would have that as a component. Now, that peace plan uh, doesn't have to say, uh, this court starts work tomorrow. It, it can talk about the structure, it can talk about the principles, talk about the way in which it's going to be created and the judges and judges picked. Uh, so you know, it's not like saying those who sign are signing definitely to be prosecuted because that's a difficult thing. But you can't push it off the table, or you won't have peace. So the debate break. is
0: really cast in very stark terms. I want to ask you about your role as ambassador at large. Um, You really presided over a period in which the United States became far more cooperative with the International Criminal Court, and I have no doubt that a lot of that can be attributed to your success. Do you think the United States has missed a trick staying outside of the International Criminal Court? I know that this is not a question that's really seriously on the table, but in your experience, did you find that the United States was able to exert a very positive influence, or or, or did you feel like you were hamstrung because— the U.S. was sort of, you know, very much an advocate of this institution for many years, but then ultimately didn't join. So, so how? Did, what was your experience of, of that?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, there's no question we'd be more influential if we were inside than out, uh, and and uh, it, and it goes to our ability to be a credible leader. I mean, there are other treaties, um, all sorts of treaties that we support, uh, you know. In the, a bipartisan support in Congress where the, the ICC does not yet have that kind of level of support where we can't get them ratified because of the nature of the American political system, the two-thirds requirement of the Senate for ratification, uh, the profound divisions that we have in American politics, and to some extent our tradition of being very reluctant to join international institutions until we really really see the advantage of them. And it took us 40 years to ratify the Genocide Convention, for instance. But this is a um, something that... Uh, does bother our ability to, 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 to contribute in ways that we, that we would like. but those of us that worked on this had to do was to make up for it, <laughs> you know, basically get in there and, and say we're willing to assist and, and do everything we can, and we were able to assist, particularly with the arrest of the two key fugitives, Angwin uh, and, and Antigonda, in the last couple of years. Uh, other ways that we can share information or help with witness protection, uh, and, and basically constantly signal that we support uh, bringing cases like the one that just arose out of Timbuktu uh, uh, with, uh, with the attack on the, on the Islamic uh, cultural uh, um, symbols there, scrolls, uh, tombs, etc. Very, very important uh, kind of case. So We're, we're giving that support. Uh, it, it, it does, however, constantly be brought up to us, well, you're not in it, therefore you're, you're it's sort of a selective process for you, and uh, you're not practicing what you preach. And my answer to that, um, in, within the government, and, and certainly now that I'm outside the government, uh, is is to recognize that in a lot of these cases, I mean, like the Law of the Sea Convention, we can't get the votes to ratify, but we still abide by all its provisions. And and the same with the, with the uh, with the ICC. What we want to be able to say is that if an American commits a crime, like Cali did in the Vietnam War, or Sergeant Bales during killing 16 civilians in Afghanistan, or the Blackwater Guards in Missouri Square will prosecute them. And that includes other other situations. And we will do everything, whether we're inside the ICC or outside the ICC, that an ICC party would do, like Britain does with the Iraqi investigation. It investigates itself and makes sure that it's doing the right thing in terms of its own system. And that's what every country is, is asked of. And I think we need to. To make that clear and constantly speak to that and say, we believe in a single standard uh, but, in, and, but that standard first and foremost should be applied at the national level. We will, given our tradition, apply it to ourselves and when others don't apply it to themselves, uh, we expect, uh, uh, you know, we, w- we will support international efforts to, 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 to achieve justice for the victims of, of, of those situations.
0: Ambassador Rapp, it's been extraordinary to speak with you. You're coming back in a few hours to address a rather large audience, so we're going to give you a break. You're speaking about the future of international criminal justice. Could you perhaps close with one or two sentences about what is the future of international criminal justice, just just so that we know?
1: Is it hopeful? Are you optimistic? I I, I remain optimistic. I think there are immense challenges, but there are... uh, But uh, what's what's been created, I think, is is resilient, and uh, and it's resilient in in large measure because of the support of of, of civil society around the world and of victims' groups and others. Uh, They're not going to let this go away, and they're going to demand changes in in their own government's uh, policies to to work to to make sure that there's justice for, for, for the victims of the worst crimes known to humankind.
0: Thank you. Pleasure to have you here.
1: Glad to be here.